Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko here with Miyagi Mornings, episode 81. Today's question comes once again from the social media network that believes in freedom and privacy, MeWe. And uh, you can check us out there. Friend me up and uh, check the post at the top of my profile that's sticky there. And that's the best way to get content onto Miyagi Mornings through that avenue. It's not the only way, but it's one of the better ways. It's the way that almost guarantees that I'll at least read it and consider it. All right. Now, let's talk about today's topic. Again, this did come from MeWe. And this was a question about LLCs. And it was also a question about legal Zoom. So is it okay to use legal Zoom to set up an LLC? Hmm. So the problem with this one, friends and neighbors, is it's assuming that you know that you should be doing an LLC at the time that you're doing it, and you know the way that you should be doing it. If you absolutely know you want to set up an LLC and you're sure about why you're doing what you're doing, and especially if you're an individual who will be the sole uh, managing partner in the LLC, so basically it's a sole proprietorship in the form of an LLC, and again, you're sure that it makes sense for you to be an LLC, there's no reason not to use LegalZoom. There's no reason to be paying an attorney uh, money to dra- draft up your, uh, your your paperwork and file it and all that. You can do it all yourself. It'll save you thousands of dollars, and it's totally worth doing. But what's the biggest word in the English language? What's the biggest short word in the English language with only two letters in it? If. If you should be. So to answer this question, because LegalZoom can be a problem, not because it's not valid, but because it is valid, and if you do something that's valid in the eyes of the state when you shouldn't, they kind of have this no take backsies rule, you know, where like at least for that year you're doing business as an LLC and maybe, maybe you didn't want to. So let's start off with what are the positives and negatives about using a site like LegalZoom? The positive is that it's cheap and it works. The negative is you may not be making a fully informed decision when you decide to file a piece of paper again with the state and say, this is what I am now. So it, it comes down to needing some expertise. Um, I personally think you need to consult with an attorney before, a tax attorney, by the way, before you, a corporate structure and tax attorney, before you set up an LLC, a C Corp, an S Corp, whatever. I'm going to confine my discussion today to just LLCs and other corporate uh, structures. I think you would even need to do a little bit more consultation. But there's a lot of reasons for this. And a lot of it is because a lot of people are going to do business as a sole proprietor, don't really need an LLC, and um, why it doesn't do what some people seem to think it does. This A lot of this comes from authors and speakers who want to be like business bigwigs and gurus that want to sound smart. So everybody should be doing business as a corporation. That's a stupid blanket statement. And even if the person provides otherwise good information, uh, when they start talking like that, you should tune them out because they can't possibly know what you're doing. So if you're running a little backyard poultry business and doing a few thousand dollars a month or less, you probably, not definitely, but probably 
Don't need to be messing around with an LLC. See, a lot of people think that, well, once I'm an LLC, I can start deducting things that I can't deduct if I'm just doing business as myself. That's not true, period, end of story. If a thing is a reasonable business expense, it is a reasonable business expense and a legitimate business expense in the eyes of the IRS and the United States government. If you are a sole proprietor or an LLC, it does not change that. It's not like, oh, since I do business as an LLC, all of a sudden I can just claim that, uh, you know, wiping my ass with the best toilet paper is a, is a, is a tax deductible expense. Either the, the business and the entity that is that business, whether it's sole proprietor, LLC, C Corp, S Corp, et cetera, owns the, uh, the facility and it's a facility's expense or they don't. Got it? It doesn't make things that aren't deductible magically deductible. You have to be able to explain in any situation why an expense is an expense against the revenue of the business, regardless if you are an LLC, a C-Corp, a sole proprietorship, a simple partnership, an LLP, it doesn't matter. There's a belief that, well, if you're going to be a big business, you need to be a C-Corp. I worked for a publicly traded company that was an LLC. Just saying. Like, so don't. And you ain't going to be, you know, rolling out public, you know, IPOs on your company anyway. And if you are doing that with LegalZoom, you're just stupid, right? Because you ain't got it, right? Like, that's not what this is for, right? So we're not worried about that. Um, but, yeah, there's this belief that it makes things deductible that aren't deductible into magically deductible, not the case. And also there's a legal protections belief that is limited compared, that's a limited liability, not no liability. And there's something called the corporate veil. That protects when you, it's like you go into bankruptcy, you come in at personal assets and things like that. If you are an LLC out of the gate as a brand new company with no track record, your company has no credit and any line of credit you obtain, you're going to personally sign for as the sole operator of it anyway. And if you go into bankruptcy, they will absolutely pierce the corporate veil right up your butt. So it's not going to provide an extenuating amount of protections from creditors. It may provide some legal protection, and it may create some legal liability that you wouldn't think of, and we'll save that one for the end. This is, again, why we have to talk to a tax attorney. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you're a small entity and you've really done your due diligence and you really think you should be setting up an LLC, you should contact a, a, a tax and, and corporations uh, attorney. And say, I want about a one-hour consultation to go over and get some recommendations. You bill me by the hour, and, and we'll handle it that way. So that you know why you're doing what you're doing and why you're going to choose not to do what you're doing. You do not need to give them three or $4,000, $5,000 to do a corporate filing for your small business. You don't. But you do need them to make sure you're thinking. And this is for a one-man show. Right? So um, there is an advantage from an accounting perspective. If you're an LLC, you will have no trouble once you get your certificate of good standing and all the other shit you have to get from the government and the state and, and, and the, you know, filing and all, where you can go down a bank and say, I want to open up a, a bank account as, you know, Bill's LLC, right? And they'll, they'll, they'll open that up for you as long as you have all the paperwork taken care of for it away and signed off and notarized and all the other shit. Now you have a bank account. Well, now you can open up a merchant account. You can open up a PayPal account, et cetera, all in the name of the corporation or the limited liability company in case of an LLC. And that makes accounting really simple because you don't spend any money from any of those accounts uh, that's not for the business. So you have a very clear delineation between business expenses and personal expenses. And then if you're doing that and you incur a personal expense, you use your personal credit card, you can then reimburse yourself from the company and you file with yourself an expense report that you keep on file. 
just like you do when you have a job and you go out and do something and you they say, well, use your credit card and fill out a special report. you got to do that to track that. When you're a sole proprietor, it, co-mingling happens because it's me. It's, it's me. Like, and, and what you can do is set up accounts that are only for your business and only for um, yourself, but yet everything's in your name. So it makes it a little cleaner from accounting. It makes it a little cleaner from a liability perspective. It's not without its merits, but I think you have to have some level of operations that are significant enough for it to matter that you have something to protect, if that makes sense. Again, this is something we discuss with an attorney uh, to, and at least a CPA to make that determination. Because in some places you're going to pay more tax because you're an LLC. You're going to be taxed as an entity even though it's passed through income. Some states have taxes on the existence of the LLC itself. Right? So most income should be passed through, but there are some jurisdictions where they can double ding you. So you need to know that. People say, well, I'll file your LLC in, in Delaware. Okay, maybe, but you know, that's tax attorney CPA. you got to have that conversation. It just You have to. So not, again, we're all legal soon, but we got to make sure we're doing what we're doing for the right reason. I always recommend, at a minimum, an LLC when two or more parties, especially unrelated parties, husband and wife is one thing, but when you are going into business with another person, you need a contract, you need an operating agreement, you need to know who can and cannot do what. You don't do business on a handshake there because we don't understand each other often as humans and by having an operating agreement and your articles of incorporation, etc., when there's a disagreement, then we can all sit down and we can look at the contract. And if you're going to do all that, you might as well form an LLC. And you really need to be talking to attorneys because they'll bring things up you didn't think of. Like, well, what happens if Bill dies and Bill's wife is a bitch? And Bill has a significant stake in the business or even a controlling stake in the business. What then? Well, maybe the other partners have a right to buy out Bill's interest because Bill's wife is a raving bitch but doesn't know anything at all right, about running the business, and we don't want her to have any control ever in it. Maybe Bill's divorced. Maybe Bill is Betty, and Betty's husband is a raving asshole lunatic, and we want the same level of protection. That's not a sexist thing. It's just an example. You're going to business with somebody, and they're married or could become married. You need protection from their spouse because you don't, and they need protection from yours because you don't know what's going to happen. What happens if somebody dies? What happens if somebody wants out? All of these things are things that you need. This is where you're going to have a multi-hour expensive conversation with an attorney to make sure you have it all buttoned down. And in that case, you may want to pony up the money and have them draft the contract. If you know you're not going to have them draft the contract so that you make sure you get straight advice, the immediate thing is, look, we're going to file this ourselves. We're going to use LegalZoom. If you're not comfortable with that, don't take my consultation. I want about a one-hour consultation. I understand you probably bill minimum one or two hours, whatever it is. Give me the rate. We'll have that consultation, and you send me a bill, and I'll pay it. Whether I go forward or not, I'll pay your bill. That way you're going to get straight dope from that attorney because they're not going to be like, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe no, but hey, if I get this guy on board, i got a $3,500 invoice to send him because people are not immune to that. So this is this is how you have to kind of stand back and look at this. So LegalZoom is fine. All of their paperwork is fine. All of it works. All of it's legitimate. But it can get you into trouble because you might do something you shouldn't have ought to have been doing in the first place. 
there are things that happen when you file a corporation or an LLC. And again, I'm sticking LLCs for this, but here's an example. If it's just me, all the income's passed through. So it, it, it kind of gives me that nicety of being able to have corporate accounts and all that stuff, but really it's just very simple. All of the revenue, less expenses that comes into income comes to me as though it was paid to me as a contractor, honestly. That's how I'm going to pay taxes on it. It's income. A hundred percent of it. What if you are partners with Bill and Betty and each of you own 33% of the corporation? 33% of the profit from the company passes through to you. Now it's not simple anymore. Now we have to have separate company accounting that, that determines everything for the company itself, which you need to do anyway. So you have an income statement, a balance sheet for your company, right? But now we have to do that, and that has to result in, 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 in shoving out something called a K, it's either a K1 or a K2, I don't remember now. It's a K4, it's a, it's a form that you get, and it says you're responsible for this much income. Here's the interesting part, ladies and gentlemen, thinking about running a company. If the company retains the money to do more work with, but it hasn't spent it yet, so it hasn't been expensed against yet, you're responsible for that income even though you didn't get it. And you often end up, when you're doing business in LLC with partners, having to distribute capital to partners you would prefer to keep inside the company because those partners are now responsible for the income as though they received it even though they didn't. Is that confusing? Let me see if I can make it simple. Two people, me and you. We form us, LLC. Our business has a profit this year of $100,000. You and I take no money out of the company because we want to keep the $100,000 in the company. Got it? Okay. Now, we each are going to report $50,000 in income that we have to pay taxes on, and it's not capital gains. It's earned income. <coughs> Consequently, if I make a lot more money than you, and you only made $30,000 you're paying taxes on. You're paying tax on 80. You're in one tax rate. Let's say I make 250000 a year without this. Now I'm paying tax on $300,000. It might change my tax bracket. This is why we have conversations with tax attorneys and CPAs because if we're going to be in that situation and we know we want to retain the income inside the company, it's far better than to do business as a, like let's say, a C-Corp or an S-Corp where the corporation pays a corporate tax and we only pay personal tax on distributions, dividends, uh, or if we pay ourselves a wage. All right? And then when we pay ourselves a wage, we also do matching, FICA, etc. on that, which you do in an LLC too, by the way. See how this is all, like, all of a sudden, wow, this is all, this is all, this is all complicated. Uh-huh. This is why you can't read books by people like Robert Kiyosaki, and he says you should do business as a corporation, and you say, oh, Robert Kiyosaki says I should do business as a corporation. Robert Kiyosaki doesn't know the square root of F all about what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, the municipality you're in, the state you're in, the country that you're in, the type of business that you're in, and what the implications are. So what's like an unseen implication? Well, one time, partner and I and two other people formed an LLC, and we ended up interviewing somebody for uh, a job, and that person sued us. I won't get into why, but that person sued us. For, it was bullshit. We could have slammed dunked them in court. But they only wanted a few hundred dollars. Like, it was like 300 bucks. So I'm like, well, I'll just go down there and slam dunk this shit. I had everything documented. There was no way they were going to win. But 
Denton County, Texas, which is where we were and physically located, and where she sued us in Denton County Court. If you are an LLC, a C-Corp, etc., you may not represent yourself in small claims court. You must retain an attorney. Now, the attorney that I had was about $300 an hour, and he charged you for things like driving to the courthouse. So it would have cost me about $2,500 because of pride. I would have wanted to slam this, this pea-brained person who did this, but it wasn't worth it to me. It was worth $300 versus $2,500, even though she got the money. She's also stupid enough to put me on as a job reference in the future, which was dumb. You can imagine that didn't work out very well. But this is an example here of why you don't just do a thing if you don't know the implications. So LegalZoom, fine, but should you be an LLC, an incorporation, or a limited liability partnership, or a not-for-profit, or anything else like that, you just have to spend the time with someone with the expertise They can listen to what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, understand the laws where you live, and tell you whether or not it actually makes sense for you. Take care, guys. We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk about negotiating. Well, hello, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 82. Uh, another question that's come off of MeWe. I kind of preluded this one yesterday, and it is on how to become a better negotiator. Um I can give you, and I'm going to give you some real hard and fast, like these are the things you do and you should do. But I want to start out with something that I can't give you, and that is confidence. Confidence and the willing to be assertive and the willingness to walk away. You have to come at a negotiation, and this is not about being cutthroat, though it can become cutthroat. But you have to come to a negotiation like this. All right, let's see if we can do something. And that's how you have to be. And those of you that are listening to the audio version of this podcast, something might have gotten lost there. That's why we put these in videos. Like, you have to have kind of this. It's the same thing as like when you're interviewing for a job. The most attractive thing that you can do to a potential employer during a job interview is give them the feeling that while you'd like to work with them, notice I said with, okay, you don't need to. And there's a good possibility that even if they make you an attractive offer, you still might say no. That the offer better be really, really good because they're competing for you. And that you don't need them. Now, if you're in a job interview and, and you're qualified, that doesn't mean you won't get an offer. If you seem like you really need the job and you really want to work there and you really got to have a job now. And if you don't get one, you're going to be in trouble. But you're not going to get as good of an offer. Assuming that the hiring manager has flexibility. When you're in a negotiation, there's where we're going to start. If you're negotiating, you better be negotiating with somebody that has the authority to say yes. And it is the first thing that you need to do um, in any process that's a negotiation or a sales process or anything like it. Is you need to very quickly determine, does the person that I'm speaking to have the authority to say yes? Because if they do not... And when I say say yes, I mean say yes to something other than the boilerplate, you know, standard answers. Then you are talking to the wrong person. And your first step then is to get above them. To find the person that can make the exception, that can say yes, that can change the rules. Because there's no point in negotiating with someone who can't. So many people make that mistake. And this comes down to, like, negotiating a lower rate on your credit card. 
You call somebody that's in New Delhi or whatever, and they're trying to get a better rate on your credit card, and, oh, we do not do that. Well, I'm sorry. You're talking to the wrong person. And it doesn't matter what you're negotiating. First, you find the person that can negotiate in good faith, that does have the authority to make exceptions, to pay more, to, to charge less, whatever it is that you're looking for. Number two, always ask for more than you want. Always ask for more than you want. Always. Enough that you feel a little tiny bit uncomfortable. If you feel completely comfortable, for instance, naming a price, you need to raise your price until you feel a little bit uncomfortable yourself about the price. Now, you also have to not be stupid with this. For instance, there's a piece of property down the road from me that's probably worth about $800,000. I've considered buying it. I think there's a lot of wonderful things I can do with it. Um, they do now have a price on the sign, but they had a price uh, sign up for years with no price on it. We called the guy on a Sunday afternoon to drive around in our truck, my wife and I, and I could hear his end of the conversation over the phone. It was loud enough that I could hear what he was saying. And when he said 1.95 million, I said, tell him it's Sunday morning and it's too early for the crack pipe. Like when you are that out of the, out of the ballpark, then no one's going to take you seriously. Now, to be fair to him, sooner or later, somebody might. Okay. But that's a, that's a different story. That guy doesn't really care if he sells that piece of property. I can tell by the way he's handling it. Um, that's the, that's his, that's his F off price, right? And that's okay too, but it's not really a negotiation. That's, you know what? Like you sit down with a buddy and the guy goes, Hey, uh, you got that piece of property. Uh, you want to sell it? Nah, not really. Well, how much, uh, would you take for it? I don't want to sell it, but okay. I'm, I'm asking you, like, if somebody came up to you and made you an offer, what's your number where even though you don't want to sell it, you would, you'd be like, Oh, screw it here. Take it. Right. And the guy's like two million bucks. And his buddy's like, you know, just put the sign up and maybe somebody will do it. And so, you know, they don't even have a formal real estate company that has signed. They got a few hundred bucks into it. Hey, maybe we'll have a $2 million payoff for the guy, right? That's a different thing. That's not a negotiation. Negotiation is we're actually trying to get something done with somebody who has the authority to get it done that can make the exception and make the deal. So in that situation, we want to be a little bit more. We have to have room to give. Number two, we need to try to figure out exactly what will make this person feel like they did well when they walk away from the deal. We need to know exactly what it is they want and we need to try to figure out how to give them what they want. And this is where, you know, people think of cutthroat negotiations. This is actually in some ways a cutthroat tactic, but not in the way people generally think of it. People think of that as I want to get mine. It's a terrible way to negotiate. The only way that you negotiate is from a, in that way is from a position of complete and total power. The person has to have almost no other options and must need the deal for that negotiation to work. In which case, it's not really a negotiation, right? It's kind of an ultimatum. And that's where people get into trouble with negotiating. They think they're negotiating, but they're actually just laying a hard line and being a hard ass and not concerned that the other party get what they want. So when I have a negotiation in, I want that other person to feel like he was tough, but I was treated fair and I got what I wanted. And he, he gave a little. So I have to start in that position where I'm asking for more than I need. I have to do exploratory work. Sometimes that's right now on the fly because this negotiation just happens. But if I have time to find out a little bit more, if this is a larger negotiation, right, and I have time to find out a little bit about, you know, let's say what's with the company. Well, who is this company? What are they doing? What are they saying publicly? What's the rumor mill say about this company? What are they trying to accomplish? What are their long-term goals? Because you might find that, well, maybe it's a good idea to bring a third party into the negotiation. 
maybe you're able to do a contingency that if we can do this deal, then I have this other deal for you. What do you want for that deal? Just my deal to go through. Maybe to be something that normally, if I brought it to a company, I would say, you know what, I want a finder's fee or a commission or something like that. But since I already know what I want, then I'm bringing that to the table with, hey, I can make this happen if we can make this happen. Sometimes that's a risky play, but sometimes the opportunities are there. The key is always knowing that your goal is not to win a negotiation, but to come out of the negotiation where both sides feel that they won. And you know where you can learn all about this in depth? Some of you are really going to hate the name I'm about to give you. Donald J. Trump's book, The Art of the Deal. Now, if you want to feel a little bit better about it, having at one time actually worked for Donald Trump uh, as a consultant uh, for uh, one of his companies and laying out all their marketing and working deeply with people that blogged as Trump, uh, as ghostwriters, and marketing his books for him, specifically uh, a series of books that came out long after Art of the Deal, I can tell you for a fact, if you want to feel better about this, even though it has his name on it, he didn't write the book. He didn't write the book. He didn't write the book. It is ghostwritten. It has a lot of his tactics and thoughts and things like that in it, but he didn't write the book. He did not sit down and write the book. So if that makes you feel better about getting information, but here's how I feel about good information. If the information's good, if the information helps me, if the information benefits me, I don't care what the source is. It doesn't matter. And so that would be the number one book I would recommend here. But just always stick to that basic formula. Ask for more than you need. Figure out what the other side really needs and do everything you can without giving up what you need to get that for them. And this carries through to people, even when you are kind of hard line, when you are tough in your negotiation, when you refuse to come down any further in a price or with any other contingencies or anything like that. A person understands this person is really trying to accommodate me. They're really trying to understand what I need, and they're really trying to make sure that I get it too. And I'll tell you a great way to experiment with this. If you start running events and workshops, get-togethers and things like that, start running a barter blanket. I have a video I did long ago for one of my workshops about how barter blankets work. I'll link to it in the video notes here. It is amazing what we've learned about sales, marketing, negotiation, and generosity now in eight years of running barter blankets. Take care, guys. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Hey guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 83. Today we're going to talk about Bitcoin, maybe a little bit different than we have in the past. I think most of the things I've said, I've said, as we'll say today, I've said before, but I said them in broken parts and pieces here and there over the years. Um, but yesterday I came across an interview with Michael Saylor, uh, marketed as a financial masterclass. It was a little over two hours, and I listened to it. And I was listening to it, and I'm like, yeah, 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 I've been saying that. Yeah, I've been saying that. Yeah, I've been saying that. And uh, then I was kind of shocked. I, I, I went ahead and bothered to look at the date of publication of the interview. It was published on Christmas Day, so it's several months, you know, four months old now. And uh, so apparently, Sailor and I have been saying a lot of the same things for a long time. Now, before you think I'm equating myself, let me put it to you this way. No matter how good you are at something, unless you're the best in the world or somebody better, and in the case of financial modeling and financial analysis, I'm really good. There's a lot of betters. There's a lot. I'm not even, you know, in the top 10,000 in the world. I'm just, I'm just switched on enough to understand this stuff. 
uh, having run businesses uh, throughout a lot of my adult life. Uh, both, you know, small concerns like I do now because I like it better and, and at one time uh, heading a ship with over 2,500 employees. So I, I get this. But Sailor is above my pay grade. What you're talking about is an MIT engineer uh, that is an absolute genius who has taken that training and applied it to finance and economics. And that's pretty incredible. And listening to his case, which was far more eloquent than the case I could make, and brought up things I never thought of, I was able to kind of condense what I've been saying into something that's a little bit more bullet point oriented. So while I recommend that you watch that interview and listen to that interview, I know not everybody's going to do it, so I'm going to try to condense a lot of the more important components of it into about 15 minutes right here. But I'll say this. You should listen to the Michael Seller interview. And if you are someone that follows me but doesn't like crypto, do it anyway. And I don't care if it doesn't change your opinion on crypto. The fundamental understanding of economic energy, monetary energy, in that interview is something that we should be teaching people in high school. <laughs> we don't. All right, so let's start off with I, I really want to bring you just kind of a new paradigm a new way of thinking about things. And some of this has always been true, but it's like, it's more true now. So we generally think that if a company has a bunch of cash on hand, that's a good thing. Then why do you invest in companies? Why don't you just hold cash? Think about that. Think about that. We have always known this, that cash is a form of capital in large quantities is a liability, not an asset. I mean, we list it as an asset, but... If you have something that's costing you a lot of money every year, isn't a liability. Real inflation is about 15% right now per year. So if you have a thousand bucks in the bank, that's your cash reserve, right? It's small potatoes. It costs you about $150 a year to hold that thousand dollars. You're not happy about it, but it doesn't destroy you. What it does is it makes you a gerbil on a wheel running faster and faster and faster and faster to get the same output. Okay? That's what it makes you, but you, 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 you'll survive as best as you can. But if you're Apple and you have $100 billion <laughs> on your balance sheet in cash, and you keep it in cash, you're burning $15 billion in shareholder value a year. You can't afford to keep doing it. Right now, you need to make about 20% on money for it to be worth risking the money. So if your financial advisor says, we did really great, we made 14% last year, you just lost a point. And with, if, if there's any tax, you know, if it's not in a completely tax sheltered environment, you, you, you lost more than a point. With tax burden, et cetera, you need to make 18 to 20% of your money to, to, to come apart, to break even. That's, that's paradigm shifting. And we've never had a, a time in history where we can look out 10 years and say, not only is it this bad, it's not going to get any better. With what they've done with money printing and are continuing to do with money printing, you're, you're being conservative at 15% sustained over 10 years. So it completely erodes a balance sheet held in cash. Keep that in mind. Number two, commercial real estate is in a burn cycle. I wrote about this in July last year. Commercial real estate going into complete and total tailspin collapse. And that doesn't mean every place, everywhere, every, every commercial building. But we have had an earth-shattering thing with COVID and the response to it with Zoom meetings, et cetera, and major corporations that were spending billions to maintain their real estate are divesting themselves of all their real estate. Unlike a thing like Bitcoin, which is a fixed cap commodity, you can always make more buildings. 
Land is fixed in how much there is, but you can always put more buildings on land. We have plenty of land to work with. Well, so now you have an expandable commodity in a retraction mode. So if you're trying, this is important to understand, even if you don't have lots of money, you need to understand where the money's going so you position yourself there first. So if you are a major corporation, one of the things you could have done in the past to beat this inflation curve with your capital is invest in real estate because it's a good tax strategy and it depreciates and you just keep borrowing against it and buying more. So you never pay tax on it. You just keep getting more and more and more and more power to borrow and buy more with. And you take some of that money and put it in your operations. It's a losing strategy now. There's very few places where commercial real estate is in any way stable. There's certainly not enough of it available right now for this type of money to flow into that we're talking about. Next, government bonds are a lost cause of this case for large reserves. The only reason giant companies ever put their money in government bonds was better than making zero and you could buy $100 billion worth and not move the market without liquidity. Like You had instant liquidity with billions and billions of dollars in sovereign debt. Well, at this point, if you're making two points on a bond, but you're burning 15, you're 13 in the hole. You're burning 13% of shareholder value as a corporation or as a bank, etc. You know, unless you're a bank that can buy it, borrow on nothing from the Federal Reserve and, and, and make that little tiny skim off the top, and since you can do it infinitely with quantity, it doesn't matter. Anybody else, you're going to have to run into something else. You, you can't sit in bonds. You just can't. Um, and Bitcoin is the answer. Because even if you're going to say, well, I'm going to invest in a company, what are you going to do? Invest in a company that's burning 150 billion, or I'm sorry, 15 billion dollars a year in inflation? That company to attract investment is going to have to do something with that capital. Because again, this is why you invest in the first place. I really want you to let that sink in. Like, if it was good that Google had a bunch of money in hand or Apple had a bunch of money on hand, why are you buying their stock? You're buying their stock because you believe that they can take that money and do more with it than you can yourself. It's actually sort of, this is why I always call charity, charity investing, right? The reason I'll write a check to a charity is because I believe they can do more good with the money than I can. The reason I will buy into the equity of a company is I believe they can do more with the money than I can myself. If I think I can do better, I'm not giving them my money. So cash is bad. That's really hard to accept in our world. And see, rich people always thought this way, but middle class, poor, working class people have always been taught to think exactly the opposite. And in some ways, saving money is good, and having some cash is good, and I'm not saying not to have any. But when you get to a certain point of reserves, you're burning your equity by holding cash. Bitcoin's the answer. So here's... Here's what I think is going to happen with Bitcoin. If you tuned in for a price prediction, especially short, midterm, I don't know. But what I'm about to tell you, I'm willing to lay some money on the line that all of these things are going to happen. And they're going to happen over the next couple of years. Uh, and some of them are already well into place. Starting out, though, I just want to point out with everything I've just said, if Bitcoin performs at 12.5% of its past results, right, or one eighth of its historical return, that is a 25, it's a 200% annualized return over five years. Okay? Any five year period is about 200% for Bitcoin. If it does one eighth of that, it's a 25% return and it's a home run and it solves every problem I just gave you. Every single one of them. 25% on your money and everything works. It works for corporations, it works for banks, it works for people. It works for the dentist and the baker, and it works for the institutional hedge fund manager. But 
much north, more south of that, it doesn't really, it starts to break apart. Now, if I said to you, hey, I think it makes sense to invest in a, a stock portfolio that has historically has done 25% over five years, 10 years, 15 years, it's done 25% steady. And I'm saying, you, you know, you can bet on five, you wouldn't even bat an eye. You'd say, well, yeah, okay, well, how's this different? Uh, if you, if you invest 50 grand in Bitcoin right now, and hold it for 10 years, and it does one-eighth of its historical returns, it will be worth just under a half a million dollars for you uh, in 10 years. That's a pretty conservative bet leading into this. Next, uh, PayPal, Square, things like this, where you can use and receive Bitcoin and PayPal. You can use and receive uh, Bitcoin with Square. You can spend dollars with Square and earn cash back on the card in Bitcoin. These are way bigger than Bitcoin enthusiasts think they are. Way bigger. And the reason that they're bigger is we know why we got into Bitcoin. Those of us who are earlier adopt, early adopters, those of us who use non-custodial, off, you know, cold wallets, etc., and we store our money in a way where no one can ever see it, no one can ever get to it. It's ours, it's ours, it's ours. And the only time we ever have to deal with anybody's shit is if we want to go into fiat. Right. We know why we did this. We know what Satoshi's vision is. It doesn't matter at this point. What matters is how many walls of money can be unleashed on the market. And what happens when you start having adoption by companies like PayPal and Square is people who couldn't buy Bitcoin, not because it wasn't physically possible, because they couldn't mentally get over the hurdle, now can go click and buy Bitcoin. The other thing that happens is all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait a minute. Because I'm, I'm telling you right now, PayPal has a cash back program. I earn 1.5% cash back every time I use my PayPal debit card as a credit card when I buy something. So I buy a lot of shit with it. Because I like 1.5% cash back because it's not a credit card, right? I'm not going to get a bill for it. It's the same as spending cash back, get 1.5% back. It's not huge, but it's something. But if Square's giving me 1.5% Bitcoin versus 1.5% dollars, which one do I think I'm going to use going forward? Okay, so when PayPal says, you know what, we got to do this too, right? Because they're going to. Then all of a sudden Visa, right? And if it's not Bitcoin, it'll be Ethereum or something like that, which is dumb, but that's probably what Visa's going to do. But once you start seeing billions of dollars exit other forms of um, banking, because all of it is a form of banking. PayPal is a kind of banking. It's just, you hold your money and somebody's a custodian over it. That's a, that's a form of banking. If I can start earning Bitcoin just by using Square as my bank, then why do I want my bank for anything but the things I absolutely have to have a bank from? So maybe I stop holding my cash in my bank and I start using these other services like Venmo or whatever if I'm going to get cash back. So what do the banks have to do? What do the banks have to do? They have to come up with some way to incentivize their people holding deposits to retain the deposits there, they have to meet the competition. So this is all going to happen. Corporate money is going to flow into Bitcoin, and what you've seen so far is just the beginning of that wall of money coming in. Sailor makes a really good point that I hadn't really thought of. I always said the money would come, but let's say that right now, a hundred big Companies have decided we're going to go and spend between $500 million and $1 billion on Bitcoin. You will not see most of that money for on the inside track six months to on the outside track 18 to 24 months. Companies take 
a long time to be able to do something like this. Not everybody's an Elon Musk Tesla where they can just move on a dime. Most companies can't do this. They won't do this. There's 24 people in suits that think they're more important than they are sitting around a conference table for a year to get something like this done, and they think they've done it fast. So that money's coming. You're only seeing the, the tip of the iceberg on it, and it's going to pour in over the next year and a half, two years, three years. Now, that is an immense wall of money. We're talking billions and billions of dollars of money. Next, on the same token, there are institutions that like Bitcoin. They think Bitcoin's a good idea, but according to their charter, et cetera, they can't invest in it. But every time a public corporation puts part of their cash reserves into Bitcoin, that's a public offering, and I, you know, it's a stock, a registered security. I can buy that. So if I want exposure to Bitcoin, I can buy Tesla. When Coinbase goes public, which we'll get to in a second, I can buy Coinbase. I can buy any public company that's holding this. So if I'm a mutual fund company, if I don't already have a mutual fund that easily converts, I can just create a new mutual fund, and I can invest in mutual funds. I'm going to invest in stocks within that mutual fund to give exposure to Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptos. That's coming too. And, well, Coinbase goes public, all bets are off. Because when the United States government gives the green light, and they're going to, to Coinbase, yes, you can be a publicly traded company traded on the stock exchange. And your only, I mean, their only business is crypto. It's the only thing that gives them value is that they allow people to buy and sell cryptocurrency. Once that happens, you can't turn to an ETF or a mutual fund company or whatever and say, yeah, you can invest in Tesla and, you know, MicroStrategy or whatever, but you can't directly invest in cryptocurrency. The, the two worlds go into a place where that doesn't work anymore. So now you get an ETF, a true Bitcoin ETF, which Canada already has, by the way. And some other, you know, Western countries have already have approved by their version of the SEC. When it happens in North America, then the money from IRAs, Roth IRAs, and 401ks, that wall goes, and now we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars in small cumulative investment. That's going to happen. These are not things that might happen. These things are going to happen. And I've been saying it for years. I guess that Sailor just did a better job of explaining it to me. Um, as these companies like PayPal, like Square, et cetera, Coinbase with their card, et cetera. It's all these gateway companies. As other companies that are technology giants, like Twitter and Facebook, realize, like, you know, Facebook's own independent cryptocurrency is an also-ran. It's not going to really work for this model. When these companies figure out that they can incentivize with crypto, they're, they're going to do it. And as they do it, all the things that people call problems for Bitcoin. Well, it only has so many transactions an hour or a block, and it's not fast enough, and it can't do 100 billion zillion transactions a day per second or whatever, will be meaningless. Because we already have a systems in place to do this, and a lot of these problems for the network just go away. Because instead of, you know, a, a million transactions an hour, PayPal will make one with a million in it. And I know that's not Satoshi's vision. I don't care at this point, okay? I don't control what happens. I can just look at what's going to happen and say, how do I position myself to take advantage of it? 
It would have been great if Bitcoin could have sent all pure as the driven snow and just was a medium of exchange between private individuals. It's still that, but it's going to be all these other things too. And if you position yourself right, I believe it can make you extremely wealthy. So that's going to happen. And then as these walls fall, these, so think of it as there's a bunch of money behind this wall and the money comes in. Another wall, right? So now you're going to get into a point where it's, yeah, it's 401ks, IRAs, but it's also more and more corporations uh, taking part in this. It's going to be hedge funds. It's going to be banks. It's going to be pension funds. And it will eventually be governments. So there are already governments that are mining Bitcoin and they're not selling it. Okay, right? So we're going to have this complete adoption of this limited quantity that no one can screw with. The 21 million is the hard, you can't just make more, ever. And once that happens, you are going to end up with the lobbyists that represent all of these entities protecting it. So all of this black swan shit where, you know, Bitcoin's going to go away, you know, when you start getting these corporations that have always written the laws, because if you think congressmen write laws, you don't know how Congress works. Lobby, so corporations hire lawyers to write bills. They give them to lobbyists, and lobbyists give them to senators and congressmen and grift the money into their packs, and then they submit that to their committees, and they, they work on getting them approved. So once you turn that apparatus toward the protection of this asset, which once it's their asset, they'll want to protect it, because who doesn't? Then all of this talk about, you know, they're going to regulate it out of existence or whatever goes away. As far as regulation, they're going to tax it. Whatever. It's taxed right now. Okay. And what people don't understand is Bitcoin is a great tax deferment strategy. And the problem is that people who are not wealthy and don't have wealthy mindsets think with poverty consciousness and they think, well, they're going to tax it at some point. Well, they tax your stocks at some point too stupid. They tax your income too stupid. They tax your house too stupid. Taxes are part of life. We can either avoid taxes or we can defer taxes, and both are valid strategies. So this is what people just, I don't think you're getting this. You can go to Coinbase tomorrow, buy $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, and leave it there if you're foolish enough to leave it on a custodial account. The people that run Coinbase could send all information they have about you to the United States federal government, including a picture of you with a Bitcoin shirt on petting your dog. You owe $0 in taxes. Five years from now, that Bitcoin can be worth $500,000. Let's say it goes up fivefold, one time each year, 500 grand. You've now profited $400,000 in your brain anyway. Do you know how much you owe in taxes? Zero. If you then sell $10,000 worth of Bitcoin because you need it, you pay tax on the gain of that portion of Bitcoin from that original $100,000. So if you hold Bitcoin till you retire... And then you say, well, I'm going to take uh, $50,000 out of my crypto portfolio every year. You pay tax on the $50,000 as it comes out. The rest of it is tax deferred for as long as you leave it in that form. I'm not talking about like-kind exchanges, which are illegal. I'm not talking about the backdoor shit you can do. I'm talking about if you are as white as the and lily as the driven snow with purity that you totally tell them everything you've done. You do not pay. It's, it's a commodity. And it does not have a dividend. I guess a proof-of-stake coin would be considered a dividend. So those would be taxable. If we're talking about Bitcoin. It is an incredible tax deferment strategy. You sweep your surplus capital into it and you let it grow. 
and you only pay when you pull it out. And when the Roth IRAs become available to buy it, I would take as much as you can and move it into that form because then it's never taxed. Never taxed. But I'll take tax deferment. And if, if people that don't see the value in tax deferment, you're going to be broke for the rest of your life until you start understanding these concepts. This is why I've preached financial literacy since 2008. You know, I've said things like get on the financial term of the day from Investopedia. So you get a little email every day that gives you a financial word and explains what it means. So you become financially literate. Capital deferment and tax deferment are vital to becoming incredibly wealthy in the society that we live in today. The rich understand it. Most of you don't. And that's why you're going to stay broke even if you think you have money. Now, I don't mean to be a dick, but I'm just telling you the God's honest truth here. And Bitcoin is not the only place where that applies. Um, ne next, I, I want you to start thinking about it this way. I don't crap on alts the way Sailor does completely, but overall... Bitcoin won. It's over. It's done. Bitcoin's Google in the search wars. Ethereum's Yahoo. Still around, but you know what? There's still people waiting to get their money back who paid way too much for Yahoo back in 1999. And they're not getting their money back. right? And Yahoo makes money. Yahoo's not a failure. But there's one Google and there's one Bitcoin. Ethereum's Yahoo. They'll be okay. I think, I think it's a $10,000 asset when they pull off uh, 2.0, if they pull it off. That's why I'm continuing to hold my Ethereum. I think there's places for other cryptos, but they're going to be, they're not going to be Bitcoin. No one's unseating Bitcoin. The battle is won, and people just don't see it yet. When we think about the supposed problem with energy with Bitcoin, right? And I know this is a long one today, but this is so important to understand. We think about the problem, just imagine this little box of timers here that I have, right? Imagine this is an ASIC computer. And this is thousands of dollars and it takes a lot of energy to run this. I plug it in somewhere and it starts, and it starts participating in the Bitcoin network and it starts earning me a little bit of Bitcoin and hopefully enough to pay for itself, right? Okay. The only purpose that that ASIC has is to secure the Bitcoin network. It's not a problem. It is the solution. People are like, well, no, it's no, it's so they can mine and make money. But why? It's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of computers contributing to the most secure network that has ever existed on the planet in a 100% voluntary basis. It's beautiful. And that's the value of the Bitcoin network. It's not just that there's only 21 million ever to be minted. It's the security. It's the stability. It's knowing that when I send you, you know, enough Bitcoin for a scone or a Ferrari, you know that Bitcoin is valid and it can't be stolen from you. That's it. And that is done. No one will ever in the foreseeable future unseat that. There's too much first mover advantage. You can say, well, this is better money. This I don't care. No one else has that. And lastly, we also need to start understanding with that in mind, there's Bitcoin the asset and there's Bitcoin the network and both of them are important. We have services now being built on the Bitcoin network that don't necessarily use Bitcoin. A privacy coin called R, also known as Pirate Chain, uses three blockchains simultaneously for security. One happens to be the Bitcoin blockchain. We have another, I think it's called Strike, 
where you can basically send money anywhere in the world for free, it's using the Bitcoin network. These technologies I talk about, like like PayPal and and Square, etc. Yeah, they're using Bitcoin, but they're really using the Bitcoin network. The value of that network is extreme, and Bitcoin is a piece of the network. That's what you're buying when you buy Bitcoin—a piece of that network, which is the most valuable network in the world. With more money coming into it, and how do you build a financial network? You add money to it. And when the money comes, the protection comes from government, which is the only threat that there is right now. And you know that when money comes into the lobbyist field to protect the thing, it stays with us forever, no matter how many people don't want it. And people do want this. So I'm just going to say, if you're not investing in this space right now, I think you're you're missing out. If you're a financial advisor and you're so old school, you can't see the place where you start making the recommendation that your your clients put some of their portfolio into this. You're doing a disservice to your clients. This is not going away. This is not toilet mania. And I recommend that you get started and you 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 ease into it. I know some people hate Coinbase, but if you have no Bitcoin and you want to buy it for cash, it's the easy, safe on ramp. And yes, they're going to ask for your ID and all that. But remember what I said. Buying Bitcoin does not incur a penalty. Buying Bitcoin does not incur a tax. Trading or selling it does. If you're investing long term, you're in tax deferment mode. And again, I'm going to go back to this. If we perform at one eighth, what we've performed at, not even since inception, because that's so like you know, Bitcoin was worth a penny or whatever. Since the last five years, perform at one eighth, fifty grand put into Bitcoin, in five years is four hundred sixty-five thousand dollars. That's math. I'm not guaranteeing it's going to happen, but all of these things they're going to break down these these walls of money. I am because the writing is on the wall. Does that mean there can't be a black swan event? No. But man, you play the averages in this world. That's how you win. With that, you can check out all the resources, including how to get free crypto, etc., in the video notes below. Sorry, this one went almost 30 minutes, but. Um, I'm actually not going to be on this subject now for quite a while, but I felt this was incredibly important, and I really recommend you check out the Michael Saylor interview also in the notes below. And hey, Michael, if you're out there, I'd love to have you on TSP. I heard your comments about you don't think the zombie apocalypse is coming. Just because we call ourselves a survival podcast does not mean that we are hiding in bunkers with tinfoil hats. This is the kind of thing we've been talking about and doing since 2014 now when it comes to Bitcoin. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 84. Today's question, again, comes from MeWe, and because yesterday's Miyagi Mornings was so long, I will endeavor to make this one around five to six minutes. It's a pretty simple one, because I have to keep it simple. I can't go deep and long with it. person asked, uh, given that like 40% of the people in the United States live in coastal counties, meaning a beach is you know, an hour or less drive for them, what about fishing, uh, shore fishing, and specifically subsistence fishing, fishing for food? And they said they know that I love to surf fish, and uh, but they don't really know what they need to do to be able to do it. Okay. This is uh, going to vary widely because fishing the Texas coast and the Florida coast are not much different, but fishing the coast of, uh, a little bit coast of New Hampshire, let's say, and the coast of uh, Florida, very, very different. Different fish, different seasons, different times, different currents. I mean, everything's different. But 
I'm going to say that everything I'm going to say today, I'm going to I'm going to steer toward fishing in the ocean from shore, but it fits fishing streams, lakes, rivers, etc., bar ditches, any place where fish are. My basic advice here. So number one, in freshwater, you you know that almost every fish at one point or another will eat a worm. So it's kind of your go-to bait. They'll also eat something that is the go-to bait in saltwater, which is shrimp. And if nothing else, a piece of dead shrimp on a mono leader, if you're using braided line, and even if you're not, it's still probably a good idea, mono or fluorocarbon leader. I prefer fluorocarbon, you know, about a foot and a half to two foot long, a swivel and a slip weight. In other words, when the fish takes the bait, they can pull it through the weight. There's various different kinds, different weights. Sometimes you need a great big old, you know, one or two ounce triangle weight because you got heavy current. Sometimes, you know, a little quarter ounce bullet weight is plenty, whatever. That's kind of your go-to rig. That's kind of your go-to rig. There's tons of other options, but you can definitely kind of see what's going on, catch fish, and at least catch fish that you can use for bait for other fish. My primary advice, though, if you're going to say I'm fishing for food, and this person was talking about for hard times. I don't know... Maybe personal hard times, but if we get into all hard times, it makes me think of my grandfather's story about um, rat traps that I found back in the Great Depression, even though I wasn't fish. And I found these huge rat traps. They weren't really any bigger, not really bigger, heavy, because they were made of oak. They were oak planks about the size of a standard rat trap, really strong spring. They had these big holes drilled in them. And I said, Grandpa, what, what's with the holes in the rat traps? He says, them squirrel traps, son. I was like, what? He goes, well, what you do, you nail it to a tree, you bait it with peanut butter, and a squirrel comes and it catches them, holds them there until you come get them. And I said, well, when did you do that? He said, during the Great Depression. That's how old these things were. And I said, uh, did it work? He said, for about two years. And there were no more squirrels because everybody was doing it. So if you're, if you're going to like wait for hard times when everybody's going to a resource, then that resource is going to be drained. Now, personally, and I don't know where kind of the north-south boundary of this changes things. But to me, the number one fish that you can fish for, that you can almost always catch in my part of the United States, which again, Texas, Florida, Georgia, whole Gulf region, etc., is known as, the, the correct name is the Gulf Kingfish. Everybody calls them whiting. And they're a fish that you have to be really careful with how you handle them because if you overcook them, or you let them get waterlogged to the, the least degree or whatever, they get mushy and they don't have a good texture. Hence, a lot of people don't think they're worth eating. They're actually a fantastic eating fish. And the rules for them are simple. When you fillet them and you're going to freeze them, salt them, put them on a like a cookie drying rack, the fillets, and if you have to do this in batches, fine, and let them sit a day in the refrigerator, and I don't mean salted like you're making salt cod. I just mean a sprinkle of salt. It draws water out, and that way when you freeze them, you're not rupturing cells. And they need to not be submerged in ice water. Right? You get a big cooler full of ice, fish go in a bag, bag goes on ice, ice goes on top of bag. And there's a lot of other great fish out there that are easy to catch from shore in salt water that are great eating that people don't think are good eating. And I don't care who says otherwise, both gaff top and hardhead catfish are delicious. I've heard people, well, the gaff tops are good, but the hardheads aren't. And I've cooked those same people a piece of hardhead catfish on the grill without telling them what it was. Well, that's fantastic. Again, it's all about handling. And, yes, a lot of times they're a little bitty and they're not worth it. But if you get into bigger ones, 
both of them are fantastic fish. Why would a hardhead catfish be bad to eat and a channel catfish from freshwater be good to eat? Name a reason. You don't have one. Done. So then you can find the other things. And this is what you want to do is you want to be able to start timing runs. You got this big old coastline. I don't like somebody in a boat that knows, well, they're out there on this reef or they're on this structure right now. You got to deal with what's coming through. And you'll find that whiting, uh, sea trout, speckled sea trout, sand trout, croaker, uh, sheep's head, tons of good fish to eat move through at different times based on water temperature, currents, seasons, etc., spawning patterns, all that stuff. And then you can start going from there and figuring out how to use different baits uh, and different techniques moving up the chain. Uh, I love to fish for sharks. I don't recommend that you really rely on shark heavily as a food source. Um, the higher up a food chain you go with an animal, the more it eats little fish. The longer it lives, the bigger it gets, the more it accumulates mercury. My view is the best eating sharks that you can catch from shore. I catch tons of them in Florida. As long as they're at the legal limit uh, for the size, usually you can keep one a day, is the small black tips that are a couple foot long. That fish is going to have no more mercury accumulation than you know a larger sea trout or something like that. So I don't mind eating those. But big sharks, I wouldn't do it often. I wouldn't do it often because you don't, mercury is bad shit and it bioaccumulates in the food chain. And you know, you, there's a lot of other fish in Florida. We catch a lot of pompano and permit. Those are fantastic eating fish and they are better caught on a, a little critter called a sand flea. And cut bait always seems to work. The same whiting that are good eating, cut up, they're great bait. They're, you know, learn to throw a cast net would be another piece of advice I'd have because what you want to be able to do is roll down to the beach that you're going to fish or the pier or whatever it is and fish for as little money as possible. And I'd say that once you get the timing right, the reason this is a good strategy economically, I can go down to the coast of Texas checking. Another thing to check is current conditions, right? Like what wind, when you have really heavy wind, really rough surface, generally not as good as when you have calm surf, incoming tides, high tides, and just for a couple hours on the outgoing side. If I time all that right with the time of year that whiting are running in Texas, I can go down with two cheapo rods and some shrimp or something like, uh, I can't think of what it's called now. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes, but there's a, there's a bait you can buy now that's like in strips and that works, that comes in clam and shrimp and a bunch of other flavors and it's just escaping me now. That works real good for this uh, application as well. I can go down there and spend a half a day and I can come home with one of those 100 gallon igloo coolers like half full, like half half ice and half fish. Now that's not clean, that would be whole fish, but that's a lot of fish for a half day's work. It take me longer to drive than I probably spend actually with lines in the water when they're running because they're just not that bright and if there's food in front of them, they eat it. And that's what you're looking for for fishing for food. You know, if you live in Pennsylvania, they stock trout and if you go trout fishing, you might as well take your stock trout home and eat them and whatever, but you're not gonna, go out and routinely bring home, you know, 50 trout. It's over the limit, and even if you could, there ain't that many of them. Like, they, they come and go in ebbs and flows, right, when they stock and what have you. There's some wild trout population, there's a limit there. If you wanted to do this in freshwater, in Texas, for instance, catfish and white bass, and to a lesser degree, crappie, and if you can find the right water for them, because all these big lakes around here are actually terrible for panfish, but the panfish like your brim, your bluegills, et cetera, your, all, all that stuff, those are the fish to go after because they're easy to catch, 
they, they are always schooling. If you find one, you find many. And once you find them at a certain size, they tend to kind of group up in that size. And that's the key to fishing for, for food is to, to do it economically. People that are running around with $45,000 bass boats, I don't fault you. You know, $45,000 bass boat, $20,000 worth of tackle in it. I got friggin', you know, five, five grand in the, in the trolling motors, software and fish fine. That's all fine. But don't kid yourself. You're not, you're not being profitable in your fishing. Anyway, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. I went way longer than I planned to, 10 minutes, but I just love fishing. Maybe we'll talk about it more in the future. Hi, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 85. Um, today's show is about doing your own research and questioning everything, something that is apparently wrong think and dangerous and evil in today's world. What spawned this episode of Miyagi Mornings was somebody sent me a link to a story I'd read a few months ago uh, by Forbes magazine. And the title of the article was Why You Must Not Do Your Own Research When It Comes to Science. Now, I want this episode to be about more than science. I want it to be about everything and anything. But I want to start out by explaining something about what science is and what science isn't, if it's actually science. And this is a good one to share with your friends and neighbors that maybe aren't into prepping and the other stuff that I talk about. This is something I believe that every American needs to hear. And I'm going to try to keep this one short, seven-ish minutes. Um, science is not an institution, and science is not an authority. If you look at science as an institution or an authority or the people giving you information they're calling science see themselves as an institution or an authority, you know you're not dealing with science. There might be scientists involved, but that doesn't make it science. Um, I'm a pretty good mechanic, but if I am telling you about a book, it's irrelevant. It's not mechanics unless the book itself is about mechanics. You see what I'm saying? Science is a process. Science is... A process that was designed to take away authority by fiat. That's what it was. Science was, we're not going to simply accept this explanation because the king says so, or a pope says so, or a priest says so, or a tradition says so. Instead, we're going to test the belief and look for repeatable results. And if those repeatable results are there, then we confirm a thing, or at least we know more about a thing. And if they're not there, then we don't know, and we don't pretend that we do. It's a very simple thing. When I read that article the first time, again, a few months ago, all I could think of is the majority of my science teachers from my past are probably dead by now. They probably passed on because they were you know, older than me you know, 30, 40 years ago at this point, right? So... But, I mean, I just think of, like, and maybe she's still around, just a, a pleasant old lady, I would bet, if she still is. But I just think of uh, Miss Bosang, uh, and, and I just wonder if if she is is passed away, if, if somebody were to stand over her grave and read that headline, if she'd not spin in her grave, honestly. Because I learned from her all the way back when I was in 10th grade science class, for God's sakes, science is a process. Science is a process. And if you can't repeat the results, then you can't claim that something has been confirmed by science. Very simple. Well, this should be true in all walks of life, but I want to talk about the other side of this now. And I want to point something out. I am not bringing up any specific issues today, nor taking a side on any specific issue. Because the second I do that, the purity of this message will be lost. Because if I bring something up you agree with, you'll say, yep, yeah, 
See, he's right. And if I bring up something you disagree with, you'll say he's a quack, he's nuts, he's wrong. Which is completely against what I'm trying to teach you today, if you don't already understand and know this. Because there is another side to questioning everything, doing your own research, coming to your own logical conclusions. And that is that you need to do that before you go spouting off at the mouth about something, sharing shit on social media, making claims about a thing before you know anything about a thing. Because what I have found to be consistently true, you can take any hot button issue with people shrieking at each other online today. And if you just grab two people at random from the two sides shrieking at each other and said, sit down, shut your mouth, here's a piece of paper and a pencil, write down everything you know about this thing. You actually know about this thing. Not what you think, what you actually know. Write it down. Five minutes later, you'd come back, you'd see two people staring at it like an ape trying to comprehend calculus with blank sheets of paper in front of them. They don't, they literally do not know jack shit about the thing they're shrieking about, they've both chosen a side. And that brings me to something I don't usually do with these episodes. I usually pick a quote from somebody and I put it as the cover, the thumbnail of the video for the day. And I just let it speak for itself. Today I'm going to read the one I picked, because I picked it for a very specific reason to go with this one. It was by Stephen Fry who said, A true thing poorly expressed is a lie. And what that means is even if you choose, because most of you, you're choosing just because, so you might as well flip a coin into which side you're going to pick. And if you happen to pick the right side, but you go out making your case with no facts, no logic, no reason, nothing hard that can be backed up, no place you can say, look, here's why I believe what I believe. Here's where it says this thing. Here's where it is. Here's the credibility of the source. By the way, here's the other side of the information. Here's what I would say if I was on that side. And here's why those things are wrong. And I've actually, unless you have that when you make your case, you are, I was originally going to put my own quote in this one. And what I was going to say was that truth poorly ex expressed is the greatest enemy of the truth. And I started thinking about saying, you know what, that's so profound. I bet you somebody said a version of it before. It turns out Stephen Fry made it more simple. A thing poorly expressed is a lie. A true thing poorly expresses lie. What does he really mean by that? He doesn't mean that it actually isn't true. It, he means it might as well be a lie. Because no one will believe it. No one will believe it. So this is kind of what I see as the rules for anything that you are told that you are then going to base decisions in your life on going forward. Assume it's wrong. That's rule one. Now, try to prove it right. Then, counter the argument again and try to prove it wrong. When I was in school, I was in debate, uh, debate class, right? And what we had to do in a debate class was pre prepare to debate an issue. And then when we came in the day of the debate, they would say, okay, you're pro. Shit, I'm not. I'm anti this thing. But I had to debate it to the best of my ability, much like an attorney would take up the case of somebody they figured was guilty, but they owed it to them to give them the best defense legally possible. Correct? Okay. If you can't do that with an issue, if you can't take either side of the debate and make a compelling case for it, assuming it's not something stupid like the earth is flat, right? I don't think you need to be able to make a compelling case that the earth isn't flat in 2021. 
you know you're dealing with a mental midget in that point. And I don't mind bringing that issue up because if you're like, oh, he's crazy, the earth really is flat, I, I'm not talking to you. You're, you're not part of this discussion, right? So unless it's something like that, if it's something that actually has two legitimate sides discussing it, you should be able to come at it from either side and make a case for or against it. And if you can't, you do not understand it. I think that's better advice than you must not do your own research when it comes to science. Folks, science is not an authority that exists over you. And government should not be seen as an authority that exists over you. And no institution other than your religious institution of choice should be seen as a as an institution that holds authority above you. You are a thinking breathing, brilliant human being, and assuming that you can read, you have access to more information than was contained in the entire Library of Alexandria before it was destroyed. In the words of my late father-in-law, who was a brilliant and good man, please use your God-given brain. Jack out for the week. Remember, if you want to catch all of these episodes in podcast form, the Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap is released every Saturday morning. And this Saturday will be no exception. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.